All right. Um, okay, if you have Bibles, uh, just we're in the Ten Commandments right now. There's a lot of flipping because we're tracing how these commandments are talked about throughout the scriptures. But our main text today is going to be the Eighth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, if you want to be there. And if you want to flip real fast, I'll try to remember to pause for you. Um, but if not, we do have the text on the screen. And there's quite a few texts. Now, uh, before we get going on the, the Eighth Commandment, you know, I, I always like to say a little like preface to when we talk about the Ten Commandments because there's two big mistakes we can make. We can say, well, the Ten Commandments are ten things God wants us to do to earn heaven. That's not what they are. And also we can say, well, the, since we're under grace, we can totally ignore the law of God safely. It's just a museum piece, right? And think about that. It's like, okay, so I can murder, worship other gods. Like, no, that doesn't really work either, does it? And so what are the Ten Commandments? Well, Paul tells us in, in, in the book of Romans, um, right there in chapter 13, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Moving on. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, so therefore, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What are the Ten Commandments? Well, the heart of God's law is love. If you want to know how to live a life of love, where we look is the law of God. We look to the Ten Commandments. This is God's guidance for us. So it's not our means of salvation. It's also not an irrelevant museum piece. Instead, it's God's guidance on how we're to live lives of love. And today's commandment is no exception. Exodus 20, 15. It's simple. It just says, you shall not steal. Sermon over. That's all we need to know. Just don't steal. I'm kidding. Let's pray before we get going. All right. Lord, I pray that as we look at what your word has to say to us on what can be a pretty challenging, convicting topic, that you would give us the grace to look up to Christ and see him there who made an end to all of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes uh, a great gifted writer will come up with a character that's so vivid that it, it kind of captures a certain vice or a certain virtue. It, it becomes like, a byword for it. You know what I mean? For instance, when I say Ebenezer Scrooge, we all imagine, you know, like the very embodiment of greed. But if, if you've only seen the movies, which by the way, the Muppets one with Michael Caine is by far the best of all of them. Um, and also word for word accurate, just to, <laughs> to the original text. But if you ever read the book, I love Dickens' description when we first meet Scrooge. He says, oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. 
A frosty rime was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and he didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm. No wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him. When they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts. Now, it's a little self-indulgent of me to read a long passage of Dickens, just because I like Dickens. Maybe. I'm, I'm at peace with it. But I love that description. We all know about Scrooge, but the way Dickens describes him is what? Cold, hard. Is it that, is, is Scrooge greedy because he loves money? No. You know why Scrooge is greedy? It's because he loves nothing and no one, not even himself. It's not like Scrooge is living it up with all of his money. He's, he's the ultimate form of greedy in that he's not even generous with himself. He just hoards money and loves nothing. And, and, and the, reason, the reason he accumulates all this money is because his heart is dead. Our, our money, Jesus says, if, where, where, where your treasure is, where your money is, there will your heart be also. Another way to say that is your wallet is your heart. I know that we spend out of our bank accounts more than our wallets, but wallets more poetic. I like it better. Your wallet is your heart. You want to see what you love, look where your money goes. Because you've got to think about the very nature of what money is. It is the means by which we obtain the desires of our hearts. We all know this process, don't we? You see that pair of shoes on somebody else. You say, <gasps> They have those pair of shoes. I want those pair of shoes. You go on Zappos. You see the pair of shoes. There is the object of your desire. How do you get it? Your money. Right? And I'm not saying that this is bad. This is, this is just how economics works. But we need to recognize that money is very closely tied to the desires of our heart. And when you look at your bank account, you see your heart on display. And when you look at it, when you see where your money goes, you will find out what you love. We love groceries at the Morjinsky house. That is, we pay more in groceries than mortgage. Um, uh, also, active wear. We really love active wear. Um, right? And when, when, you, when you look at your bank account, when you look at your money, it's going to tell you, hey, regardless of my lip service, this is what I actually love. This is what my heart is actually going after. When we, when we are greedy, right, when we go far away from love, far away from generosity, it can go to an extreme place. And this is what the commandment shows us as, as the boundary before the law kicks in is do not steal. 
right? I could be so, I could want something so much that I'm not even going to use my money. I'm just going to steal it, right? But just because you're not stealing doesn't mean that you're walking in love, does it? Now, let's think about this. Why are we to live lives of generosity? Well, if we, if we think about how God has been generous with us. In, in Exodus 20, the, which is the, the Ten Commandments, we have to remember that it starts before the first commandment, before it says you shall have no other gods. What does God say? He says, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He delivered them. Not only that, when we look at, we've been in the book of Exodus for a while now, but we, in the story of the Exodus, God is providing for them in the wilderness. He provides manna every day, free of charge. He provides water for them. He provides protection for them. He's leading them to a land that he is gifting them. This is not a stingy God that we're dealing with, is it? And you may say, well, I didn't get any land from God, right? Or, or like, I didn't get delivered out of slavery. Well, we live on the other side of the cross. And when we look at what God did for us in Jesus, think about this. God himself becomes human and gives himself for my sin and for your sin. That's generosity. Not only that, everything that exists is given to us by God, including your very life. Who here likes the Rocky Mountains? Me. From God. Who likes the ocean? Me. Also from God, who likes food, music, uh, dancing, and sex. All from God, you're welcome. All right? We don't have a stingy God. We have a God who is generous with us, a God who walks with us, a God who cares for us. The very money that's in our account, the clothes on our backs, the, the, the roofs over our heads are from the hand of God. The right response is not for us to live lives of greed and stinginess, but of faithful generosity. Now, the way that we've been going through the Ten Commandments, we think about it using the image of a dartboard, okay? Here's the dartboard. We know it and we love it. The, the goal, the bullseye of the law is always love, okay? The commandments usually tell us where the wall is. What's, what's such a bad miss? Like, like get that one back. Right? And that is stealing. As you go so far away from love, you're, you're on the wall. It's to steal. And then there's this space in the middle of, of keeping it. Right? We aspire to love, but man, if we're hitting the board regularly, we're like, okay, I'm actually growing spiritually. But if we're on the wall, we're like, okay, I need to repent. I need to, 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 to go to Christ for, for healing on this. So that's how we're going to go through this commandment is we're going to start at the wall. What does it mean to break it? What does it mean to keep it? And what does it mean to fulfill it in love? So breaking in this case is simple. It's stealing. It's taking something unrighteously, okay, that doesn't belong to you. Now, of course, this includes like, hey, there's somebody's wallet. I take it. It's not mine. Steal, regular stealing. Definitely forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. Here's what's interesting, though. When we look throughout the Bible, do you know how many examples of petty theft we see? I've never found one. You know how many times God is like, 
laying down, you know, the prophetic this and that, such and such, repent or else about petty theft? Never. Do you know what God gets up in arms about in terms of taking, uh, of stealing and breaking this commandment? It's the leveraging of desperation. I'm going to explain what that means because I made up the term. The leveraging of desperation. It's, it's, how I, it's the, the, the catch-all of what we see from the prophets in the Old Testament especially. First of all, the only time we see the word thief applied in the Bible is to the rich. Isaiah 1.23 says this, your princes are rebels. Now, a prince is a ruler, right? That's just a catch-all word that can mean anybody in charge of anything, like a noble. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Guys, what's the companion of a thief? A thief. <laughs> so it's calling the princes thieves. How are they thieves? Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come before them. So this term for thief, one who's breaching the Eighth Commandment, is not applied to the petty, th it still applies, but what we see in Scripture is that it's only applied to the rich. Second, the two great sins of Israel. One was the, the things that led to the exile. One was worshiping foreign gods, worshiping idols, okay? The other one might surprise you. You know what it was? We see it here in Isaiah 5.8. It says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Nobody understood what that's talking about. Here's what was going on. In ancient Israel, every family had their own plot of land. They had an inheritance. They handed down generation to generation. Land was wealth. Land was how you grew your food, fed your cattle, such and such, right? So everybody was provided for in ancient Israel. However, there was a provision in the law that if your crops failed so that your family wouldn't starve to death, someone else could buy your land and you could sell your labor. But at the year of Jubilee, everything had to revert to the original owners. And what started happening is that the wealthy started buying up that land and creating mega estates and not giving it back at the year of Jubilee, so that you had people who were perpetually dis dispossessed and in poverty, and then a few who were, had way more than enough, okay? This, and, and like, I'm gonna read you one more text that talks about this, Micah 2.2. 2 says this, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Clearer now, right? What's going on there? These, there are so many prophetic texts like this calling that practice stealing, right? That I'm, I'm just playing you like two of the greatest hits. It's all over the place. This is something that God actually had a huge problem with that led to the exile. Also, uh, we see that stealing includes negotiating for labor with the desperate. Amos 8, 4, 6 says, 4 through 6 says this, Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will, we, will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may what make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat?' 
This is talking about when someone is so desperate, when someone has no other options, leveraging that desperation to get a good deal for yourself. Okay? So the, the first way to violate, to break the, the Eighth Commandment is petty theft, regular old stealing. You know, people out there stealing identities or wallets or what have you, cars, catalytic converters are popular right now. But the far greater concern in the Bible is this leveraging of desperation. When someone is poor and desperate, those who have power using it to, to their own advantage and the other's detriment because they have no other choice. Now, we've all heard the name J.D. Rockefeller. It's on buildings, it's the name on many endowments. You know anything about him? How he got that gigantic fortune? So he was the founder of Standard Oil, right? The way that he got to be Standard Oil, the name J.D. Rockefeller, is that he would, he actually started by striking a secret and illegal deal with the railway, railroads, okay? So that he was able to undercut his competitors by shipping his oil for less. He would then send in spies to other oil companies, and when they were desperate, because he had undercut them so much illegally, he would then offer 30 cents on the dollar, and they would sell. And by this method of leveraging desperation, he was able to accumulate all oil production to himself. He owned all oil production in the United States, the Eastern United States, which basically was back then. And we're like, that's great, you know? What a good, what a good businessman. That's leveraging desperation, right? That's what, that's what the scriptures would call stealing. And we see a lot of this. Now there's just plain old taking property. That is wrong. Don't hear me say, hey, the pastor said, it doesn't matter if we steal stuff as long as we're like not leveraging desperation. But there's a lot of practices. Like I get calls every single day. Someone wanting to buy my house, looking for a sucker, right? They want to buy it for way less than it's worth. And I know what they're trying to find is someone desperate who will sell for way below market value. And they're trying to take advantage of that desperation. Payday loan shops. You know how these things work? Someone is so desperate, they go and get a, a advance on their paycheck. Do you know how much it is to pay back a payday loan? With compound interest, it is 200%. It entraps so someone in an endless cycle. The exploiting of workers around the world, but especially in our country, people who don't have, who don't have like status, immigration status, who are undocumented and have no recourse, no way to, to, no way to fight for what's fair. Often you look at, like, there was a case, did you guys know about this? There was a case in Colorado where uh, undocumented guys were enslaved shepherding sheep. Did you hear about this case? This is something that's going on in the shadows, and it is a major breach of the Eighth Commandment. Now, if any of you guys are engaged in that sort of thing, uh, we are called to repentance. And if you've done it, you're, like, remember, it's not how we, we don't earn salvation through the Ten Commandments, but it is God calling us to live lives of love. There is grace for those who leverage desperation. 
But also, there are, all of us are consumers. We buy stuff. Many of the products that are on the marketplace that we buy are somewhere in the supply chain, lever desperation has been leveraged. So many of the clothes that we buy, and this includes not just the fast fashion brands, but a lot of the most expensive brands, they do not pay their worker anything but workers anything but starvation wages. Why? Because they have no other choice. You could have a wage that's just above starvation or starvation. That's leveraging desperation. And, right, like consciousness of the products that we buy is really important here. Chocolate. Oh, this one gets me every time. You ever wonder why you go to the grocery store and it's like, you know, a dollar for this chocolate bar and it's like four dollars for this snowflake chocolate over here that has pictures of a rainforest on it for some reason? Well, the reason is, is that there are cocoa bean exchanges that use cocoa beans harvested in Mali and Cote d'Ivoire through slave labor. Straight up, not, not kind of slave labor like people are kidnapped and enslaved picking cocoa beans. And then these companies buy the cheaper beans, pass that delicious savings on to you. Now, some of you might be thinking I'm a snowflake, that I'm some sort of, you know, liberal guy up here. I am uh, not. But, you know, call me whatever you want. I, I'm all ears for the moral calculus here. If you're like, hey, I'm gonna buy whatever I want, even if there's slave labor involved, even if there's starvation wages, abused workers, unsafe factory conditions, I'm gonna just go on buying whatever as long as, it's, as long as it suits me. I'm all ears. I'll get out a pad and paper. You break that, down that moral calculus for me. You show me how that jives with the Eighth Commandment and how it, it it matches the, the, the economic practices that, that Christians are called to. Right? We have a generous God, not a stingy God, not a God that's leveraging desperation, but a God who's open-handed with us. We cannot be participating in those economic practices. Okay? Now, that's, that's hitting the wall. What does it mean to, to get on the board? Well, it's to give what is required. Not only do we not take what we shouldn't, but we give what's required. First of all, to God. And Malachi 3, 6 through 10 says this. The, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So, First of all, giving what is required to God. And then also giving what is required to the poor. Exodus 23, 11 says this. The seventh year you shall let it rest, that is your field, lie rest, uh, rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. 
you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. What's going on there is an ancient farmer would have multiple fields, okay? And what they were supposed to do is rotate fields. And so that field, each field, one in seven years would lie fallow and rest, not only so the land could have rest, but also so that those who didn't have land would have a place where they could grow some crops and feed their family. This was not optional in the law of God. Like being the people of God meant you had to. So the first step of faithfulness uh, with regard to the eighth commandment of getting past greed is to give what is required to God and to the poor. Now, it's really hard for us to give what's required. It is not an easy thing. This is, the, the, the sin of greed has us all captive, right? If we're honest. There's an old, um, in high school I really liked cheesy horror films. And there's a really good one, they made a remake recently, I didn't see it and I'm not going to, but Evil Dead 2, any, any fans? Knew, yeah, a couple of you guys know Evil Dead 2. It stars Bruce Campbell, who's an old favorite, and um, it, it was so, it was not low budget, it was no budget. <laughs> and here's how, here's how no budget it was. Bruce Campbell, the, the, the plot line is he goes up to a cabin in the woods. He finds this book of magic spells. It's a very bad book. And he reads one and ends up awakening a demon that possesses his hand. Now, that's, it doesn't get more low budget than that. It's like, well, what's the monster? What's the villain? His hand. It's like, the, you know what I mean? Like, no, no special effects or anything. It's just he has to walk around the whole movie with his hand trying to kill him. Like, it's grabbing sharp things, and he's, like, trying to fend his hand off. Uh, he eventually cuts it off with a chainsaw. But anyway, <laughs> don't watch that movie. Hey, the pastor said to watch horror movies. It's rated R. That's awesome. No, don't see it. But the reason I bring that up uh, about the, the possession of the hand is because it actually happened to me once. Uh, here's what happened. My, my hand got possessed by a demon. I'm not kidding. I, 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 I completely lost control of it, and it, it, it almost tried to kill me. So it was the first time that I was filling out like an auto-give for, for church, right, where, where it auto-drafts your, your tithe every month. And I had filled in all my information, bank account information, all that stuff, how, you know, frequency of gift, amount of gift, and then there was the submit button. And so I was going to press the submit button, and a demon overtook my hand, and I couldn't just, you know, and it turned on me. <laughs> because in my heart, I was afraid. And I realized that one of the desires of my heart that, that my, I perceive money is giving me is security against things going wrong. Right? So for a lot of us, it's not that we love money. We're afraid. We're afraid of, if I just give it away, you know, like, I, I, I'm, I'm losing something that protects me. Also, like, we're going to be 100% honest here. If, if I spend my money here, like giving faithfully to God and to the poor, then 
there are some really cool things I'd like to buy or I'd like to do, a vacation, a meal, a piece of clothing, a subscription or whatever that I have to say no to. And if I'm honest, I really feel like it's a need. I really feel like this, this product, this experience is what's gonna fill the soul. And I'm afraid of missing out on it. I'm not making light of this, guys. I'm saying that th this, this grips the heart, you know? That, that if I'm honest, greed, like, like the rest of our culture, it, it's just, it's got me. You know, and part of giving what's required is God calling us to love instead of greed. Giving has little to do with how, money, how much money you make. When they study who gives what in terms of charitable giving or tithing at church, here's the interesting thing. When they break it down by class, the upper classes, right, the, the very wealthy, give the most in terms of absolute numbers and percentage of income, most generous. Number two is not the middle class. The second is the working class. They give more of their, the percentage of their income and more in absolute numbers. Middle class is below that. This is not a matter of what's in the account, but what's in the heart. When we look at Colorado, Colorado is, in terms of wealth, in the top third of the 50 states. Okay, we're, we're up there. You're looking, there it is. Denver, Colorado is at the top of Colorado. So top of the top, we, we all getting that? This is not complicated, you're smart people. I, why am I doing that? <laughs> when we look at charitable giving, you know where Colorado falls? And this is not just giving to church, this is all charitable giving. <clears throat> Bottom fourth. You know where Denver falls in, in comparison to the rest of Colorado? The very bottom. Does that math add up? In terms of wealth at the top, in terms of generosity at the bottom. This is not a matter of having enough or not having enough. This is a matter of the heart. Now, the, the tithe, the 10%, I realize is aspirational. Look, and, and also don't hear this as some sort of plea for tithing at grace and peace, all right? If, if, we, if we all ended up giving 10% of our, of our income somewhere besides grace and peace, like, like, like $0 came to grace and peace, but like we're all giving generously to other things, like I'd be over, we'd cease to exist. I, <laughs> I'd have to find another job, but you know what? I would, I'd be unhireable too, wouldn't I? It's like, well, what happened at your last church? I, we discipled them so good, but that they were giving 10%, but nobody gave anything. Anyway. <laughs> well, that went somewhere. But I, look, I realize that for most of us, like, we're looking up at 10% saying, well, that's, that's, that's too high of a mountain. If, if right now we're giving almost nothing, compared to what we make, let's, the, the call is to start with a step. Give 5%. Again, I'm not saying just give it to grace and peace. If you find worthy, worthy kingdom things that you want to give to, right, give to that by all means. What I'm calling us to is away from the wall of greed and towards faithfulness. Now, some of you guys are like, but I'm in, I'm in real poverty, right? Like, 
Like 5% I'm not eating. I would say even then, start with five bucks a month. And I realize that for some people uh, on some budgets, five bucks a month is something, right? That's saying no to something else, right? But if we are going to begin getting set free from this, this, this bondage of greed, we need to take the first faithful step and grow from there. Now, so that's the wall and the, 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 the board, but what's the bullseye? Well, the bullseye is to give like God, to give like God. When we look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7, it says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That is like, you know, when you open up your heart, what comes out is generosity. That's the ideal. That's love. It's like um, sometimes I... I, I I come from a, I'm half Jewish, half Italian, and my mom, you know, and my grandma and my grandpa both all cooked Italian stuff growing up. And garlic is always heavily involved. So I was like cooking one time and my son was helping me out. He's like, dad, how much garlic do I put in this? What's the measurement? I was like, no, 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 no. That's not how you put garlic in Italian food. You open your, your soul, your quarter Italian soul, and you let the garlic out. It just, it just happens, man, you know? Like the goal, the people we want to be are people who when, 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 when the heart comes out, when you look at your bank account, you're like, whoa, I'm way too generous. That's, that's, I, I, but I can't help it because I love it so much, right? And none of us are there yet. <laughs> and also, it's not just to, to give from the heart as God does, but to bless others. Right, that, it, that actually has an effect of blessing others. Acts 4.32 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now some people say, well, that's communism. I'm like, the government didn't take it from them and then, well, keep it. <laughs> that's communism. <laughs> no, this, this is a community that is so taken with the gospel that it looks like Jesus, Right? That people are not only generous, but they're, they're, they're saying, not saying, how do I keep it for myself, but how do I bless my brother or sister with this, all right? Great example of this is that in, in 1974, there was, well, there still is, like a, uh, a drought in the, the nation of Bangladesh. And the countryside was just so poverty-stricken, right? And, and there was a... a, a um, a Western-educated but from Bangladesh economist named Muhammad Yunus. You ever heard of him? Muhammad Yunus, interesting guy. He started looking at the, the countryside of Bangladesh, and he was trying to figure out why, like, because he knew, he knew Bangladesh. He's like, people are hardworking, people are honest, people are generous, but why can't the countryside be pulled out of the, the lowest levels of poverty? And he realized it's because it's they didn't have capital to get started. So he started to look at what, how capital was distributed, and he found out that banks gave loans only to men, only in the city, and only in very large amounts. So he said, you know what, let's flip that completely upside down. Instead of giving to men, he, he gave money only to women to start businesses. Instead of in the city, it was in the countryside. Instead of big amounts, it was small. He started with 42 women and $27. 
that is not $27 each. That is $27 total to start businesses. And these women would take money out to start their business, whether it's basket weaving or soap making or candles or what have you, very small businesses. And then they would, after they got going, would put the money back with a little more. This was the founding of something called Grameen Bank, which now serves millions worldwide and has lifted millions out of the most abject poverty. Can you think of a better use of $27 that you've heard of in your life? <laughs> That's not just saying, hey, I'm going to give. He gave in such a way that it was a blessing to others, right? Now, we all know about Bezos' extra yacht, like his auxiliary yacht to his main yacht. He goes to space when he wants to. He has so much money. But when I say that, like, how do you feel? Bezos has more money than all, everyone in Denver combined. Feeling anything? Like, oh, that's good for him, I guess. When I tell you about that $27 in the hands of Muhammad Yunus, how do you feel? Aspirational. Like, oh, oh, that's... Like, like some of you would, pro would probably pick to be Bezos, but, you know. <laughs> but like, it, it actually, it lights the heart on fire, doesn't it? It's like, well, I, oh, I want to be like that. I want to give like that. I want my dollars, I want my economic activity not to just benefit me, but to be a blessing to others, right? If you start to feel that tug in the heart, that's a good sign. That means you're hearing. That means, it means that, 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 that you're struggling against the greed that holds us captive, right? Starting to respond to the call of God. Like there are, there are some really good examples of this, of companies doing things the right way. For instance, a personal favorite of mine, Chipotle. Um, you know, they, for, for employees who stay four years, they actually pay a good portion of their tuition, right? Like they don't just get value from them. They're trying to build people up. They don't get anything from that. Right? There's a lot of companies that do that sort of thing. I've known uh, there are people who, who are not held by the sin of greed and, and are just faithfully giving to God and to the poor. And then I've known really wealthy people who give away way more than they keep. You know, someone who's like, hey, I don't know how to like preach the gospel or minister to students, but I know how to manage a hedge fund. <laughs> so so what their, their service to God is that they make huge amounts of money and give almost all of it away. Some of you in this room have chosen, you, you could earn a lot more than you do. With your brain, with your connections, with your education, you could get a lot more. But you choose instead to serve the underserved. Right? That's giving like God. Some of you guys are business starters. and You provide jobs for other people. Right? That, is, that is getting close to fulfilling the, the law, right? Where, where it's not just for me, but it's a blessing to others. God has been generous with us. I'm not, like I realize that this got uncomfortable. It gets uncomfortable for me too. I'm not trying to bum anybody out. I'm trying to call us to the liberty and the freedom that comes from a generous heart. You know, that's what happens to Scrooge at the end of Christmas Carol. 
You guys all know the story, but you may not have realized what the ending means. You remember there's the three, three spirits, uh, Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. And Christmas future looks like the Grim Reaper, right? Like death. And he takes him to this little hovel in which these guys are, are splitting up, you know, a bunch of little trinkets around a table and talking about a funeral they had gone to. And they were sneering, ah, no one was even there at this funeral. And Scrooge, you know, asks the spirit, who's, who, who was the, you know, the wretched creature they were talking about? Whose funeral was this that nobody came to? And, you know, in response, death takes him to a graveyard and he points to a stone and in the lamplight, Scrooge reads on it, Ebenezer Scrooge, it's his own grave, and he was the man that was unmourned. And then, you guys remember this part? Death does what? He pushes him into the grave. He kills Scrooge. But what happens next? And I realize this is a spoiler, but it's been out for a while. You've had time. <laughs> Scrooge wakes up in his own bed. He's what? He dies and he's born again. He, he, he's transformed. He's resurrected. And at the end, Scrooge it says, I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath and making a perfect lacoon of himself with his stockings. I don't know how he did that, but he says, I'm light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. What happens? His heart comes to life. And he, right, he famously, he buys the big goose, he throws a feast, he gives Bob Cratchit a raise, he starts giving his money away. His heart is alive and his money follows his heart, you see? It's my prayer for you and for me that we could start looking a lot more like Scrooge on the last page than on the first. God has been generous with us. Let's respond. Let's pray together. God, may we respond with lives and hearts of generosity that are set free from greed, that are set free from, from fear uh, that makes us hoard, from the deadness of heart and the uncaring, uh, a, heart, a heart that doesn't care for others, but instead one that is alive in the gospel, that is alive in your love and starts to look like yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.